Hopefully you're still in John chapter 19. We're going to be going to John 18 and 19, though, as we get into this, as uh, Brother Bill said, very familiar story. Uh, But I love rereading both of these chapters, the entire crucifixion account of our Lord Jesus. And in fact, in all of the different gospel accounts of the moments where Jesus was crucified, I find that the most fascinating of all the different characters to be that of Pontius Pilate. In many ways, you could cast Pontius Pilate as sort of the Disney villain of the story, with Jesus standing as our silent, sort of consummate hero. But I think actually, if you reread the story of Jesus' crucifixion, I think what you find, in fact, is that Pilate is more of a tragic figure than we perhaps remember. And in fact, I think as we read a little bit here in John 19, but especially in John 18, as he's presented with this predicament of what to do with Jesus of Nazareth, I think what you actually find is that, that Pilate was actually sort of a very reluctant figure. He wasn't hasty in sanctioning this crucifixion and execution of Jesus of Nazareth. In fact, what you really see is, is that he, his hands were effectively forced by this rowdy, very raucous Jewish mob who were sort of forcing him to sanction this whole event. And in fact, what you actually find is that he almost goes through with this whole thing, almost, almost out of spite. If you, if you think back, if you look at all the different gospel accounts, the conspiracy to crucify or at least get rid of Jesus had been brewing for quite a while. It didn't take long for the Jewish religious leaders, as soon as Jesus came on the scene, to uh, get very grumpy with him and be very turned off with what he had to say. And so, as we find ourselves in, in John 18 and 19, it had seemed as if possibly, in fact, that the, the chief priests and Pharisees had finally sort of worked up enough nerve to go through with their plan, to, to finally go through with their conspiracy to, to get Jesus out of the way. So you see, Jesus is arrested. Back in John chapter 18, if you look at verse 3, it says, So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. He's arrested in this moment of trial as this band of soldiers and men from from Rome who were sent there by this conspiracy to get Jesus out of the way suddenly he's put in shackles which is just an ironic moment as we are here told that Jesus had all the authority and power in the world 
And yet here, as we see in verse 12, he lets these soldiers put him in chains. And then he's brought before the high priest in verse number 19 of the same chapter. And what you find is that actually this priest doesn't really want to do anything, doesn't really want anything to do with him either. And just as quickly as the high priest is is given custody of Jesus, he quickly passes off the headache of prosecuting Jesus off to some other authority as quick as he can. And such is why we find that Jesus is then led from the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, to the house of Pilate, the governor. With almost this, you can kind of get this sense that it's almost like uh, Caiaphas is just passing him off and saying, here, you deal with him. If you look at verse 28, you find... That fact, then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early in the morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. Every religious authority in this little scene, as we find out, it would seem wants to be rid of Jesus. They're tired of his constant thwarting of the Mosaic law. They're tired of his constant talk about forgiveness and free salvation and the like. But no one wants to have blood on their hands. No one wants to be blamed, be the ones who are, are blamed to, uh, for, the, for this horrible deed being executed at his own expense. And in fact, this entire affair sees these Pharisees, these chief priests, these men who were supposedly experts in the law, but also supposedly adored this law, really playing fast and loose with the law. As we just read, they're bringing Jesus to the house of the governor of Rome of that district, Pontius Pilate, to do something with him, to execute him. (laughs) But did you notice what they say? (laughs) They don't even go in. Why? So that they could keep the Passover as if their purity was already at stake. And of course, if you, as you know the story, there's all kinds of under-the-table deals and, and backdoor deals and covert trials full of fake witnesses and vague accusations, all so that they could get rid of Jesus of Nazareth. Every bit of those events smelled of corruption. And no one wanted the paper trail to lead back to them. No one wanted the blood on their hands. And yet, it's so ironic because for all of their scheming, for all of their planning, for all of their strategizing, for all of their uh, conspiracy, we're still reading about them today. Still reading about the ways in which they stabbed the Lord in the back. As the plot to crucify him has been preserved for us and God's timeless word and I think through it all what we're made to see is that all of these schemes and all of these strategies and yes even this conspiracy to have Jesus put away and put to death they even despite all of that they were playing right into the father's hand did you notice that in verse number six I think it is of chapter 18 or excuse me it's it's chapter nine or (laughs) chapter 18 verse nine where it says this was To fulfill the word that he had spoken. If you jump down to verse 32. The same phrase is repeated. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus has spoken. Nothing was out of place. Even as all of that chaos and commotion. Was leading to the inevitable end of Jesus dying on a cross. But back to the events at hand. Jesus is now in custody of Pilate. The chief priests having dropped him off on Pilate's porch. With a note that said, deal with him. 
And very quickly, as we learn, as we find out, Pilate comes to the conclusion that this whole thing is a farce. If you look at verse 33, you notice what happens. So Pilate entered his headquarters, having just received Jesus into his own custody. And it says, and again, he called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king for this purpose I was born And for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Several times throughout this narrative, as we find out, as as Pastor Bill read, Pilate repeats that phrase, I find no guilt in him. At the end of verse 38, he says it. And when he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and he told them, I find no guilt in him. Chapter 19, verse 4, Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Verse number 6, again. When the chief priests and the officers came to him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. But Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Pilate's no dummy. I think he sees through all of the charades of what the, the priests and the Pharisees were looking to have happen. And his conclusion, quite definitively, is that the opinion of Rome is, is that this man has done really nothing wrong of worthy enough of execution, let alone crucifixion. And he's not looking to sort of expedite the death penalty on some backwoods preacher from Nazareth, even if... He had a reputation for being somewhat of a troublemaker, of somewhat of an agitator or an instigator. He's not interested in ruining a good Friday. So Pilate decides to survey the mob again as he, we read in verse 38 again. He goes back outside. I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom, he says in verse 39, that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. You see, traditionally, as as it would have it, the Passover saw the release of one Jewish criminal by a Roman official. Think of it as sort of the president's turkey part in every Thanksgiving, except on a more serious scale. With one man receiving this pardon from a Roman official, and he goes free. And Pilate's verdict... Again, Rome had no cause, no quarry with Jesus. So do you want this man to receive the pardon? Receive freedom. Except Pilate's mistake, as you learn, as you read, he refers to Jesus as who? The king of the Jews. This, of course, is something that the Jewish folk had come to very much disdain and deplore because Jesus had done nothing kingly up to this point. He had done nothing in the way to sort of live up to the people's expectations of what their king was supposed to do and what he was supposed to look like and what he was supposed to accomplish, which is somewhat frustrating. 
Because all of Jesus' teachings up to this point, if you had been following him, should have led you to that conclusion. You're the one. You're the Messiah. You're the one who was prophesied about. Except he's not, he doesn't seem to be doing Messiah-like things. He's not leading a revolt. He has no army marshaled behind him. He has no movement, so to speak, that is championing his cause. In fact, now he's, he's arrested. And now he's facing death itself. And I think that's exactly why they start clamoring for Barabbas to be released. Barabbas, if you remember from Mark, we're given even a little bit more detail about Barabbas, this man. He was arrested because he was the leader of some sort of insurrection against the Roman government. He and his comrades were sort of standing up to the man. They were the Jews who were leading the patriots' cause. He was leading a revolution. And yet here he was sitting waiting for his own execution. Waiting uh, sort of on death row as it would have it. And yet here he is being get, now being given freedom. You can see this sort of flip-flopping of the, of the people's allegiances away from that Jesus guy. Barabbas, he's the one that we want. He was seen as this courageous Jewish nationalist who had curried favor because he was doing exactly what they thought Jesus should have been doing. Standing up to Rome, using force, taking out his sword and bringing Israel back to dominance. Leading the struggle, leading the cause. But again, as Jesus has already made clear, my kingdom is not of this world. And it doesn't come through the sword. It doesn't come through my disciples fighting for me. (laughs) Now with Barabbas released and Jesus in custody, what is Pilate to do? He decides to have Jesus flogged. (laughs) He has Jesus beaten, it says in verse number 1 of chapter 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. So Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. After he's beaten, after he's beaten to a pulp, now he's paraded in front of all of this mob. And this cruel display of pretended honor with a crown that's made of thorns that's that's plunged into his skull. With a robe of purple demonstrating his royalty that's thrown over his beaten body. You see, from Pilate's point of view, this is just making fun of the Jews themselves. In his eyes, Jesus is nothing more than just another fanatical religious idealist back from the backwoods of Nazareth who's come and he's garnered some popularity. But he's, he's not the first to make claims about this and he won't be the last. So we just, let's just beat him and use him as a display, use him as an example. The claims about him being king of the Jews, they don't really give much in the way of merit. He has no kingdom to speak of. Where's his army? Therefore, they sort of mock the sentiment. Okay, he's, he's your king. Let's show you what type of king the Jews have. He's no better than a thief. 
No better than the criminals that we have on death row. And this, then you can imagine, stirs up the chief priests something fears. They send the mob into even more of a frenzy. Because they weren't satisfied with just having Jesus beaten to a pulp. They wanted him dead. They wanted the corpse of Jesus. They didn't just want him bruised. And again, Pilate wanted no part of that. He was disinterested in in making that happen. Again, notice verse 6. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him. For I find no guilt in him. And notice verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Pilate wanted to call it a day after Jesus was flogged and beaten. That, to him, was satisfactory. But the people cried out. The noise of that mob, the vitriol of that mob just proves too much. And he finally concedes. He finally agrees to put Jesus to death. Verse 13, so when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the stone pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him and crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So they delivered him over to them to be crucified. I think what's often lost on us in all of this Horrific display is the spitefulness of Pilate. And again, I think you kind of have to read in between the lines there with that spite, that venom of Pilate. Not for Jesus necessarily, but for the Jews that are right outside his door. (laughs) This king, this king of yours, what shall I do with him? He didn't sanction the crucifixion of Jesus because of some malevolent feeling for Jesus. I reckon that he had hardly ever met Jesus before that moment. In fact, I think rather he crucifies that Jesus to sort of stick it to the Jews that are yelling at him. Case in point, have you ever wondered why Jesus was nailed between two other, other thieves, two other criminals? As we find out, look at verse 17. And he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull. Which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him with two others. One on either side and Jesus between them. Why was that so? Was it just because that these two other guys, you know, these unnamed thieves that are next to Jesus on their own crosses. Was it just because their time was up too? Was this all just circumstantial? No, this was no accident. This wasn't just something, okay, we have two guys that are, their time's up, so we might as well just get rid of them too while we're at it. No, this is a slap in the face to every Jewish onlooker that was in that, knob, that mob. Because by nailing Jesus between two other criminals, what is Pilate doing? He's making a very bold, very brash political statement. The Jewish mob, they want to no know affiliation with this Jesus guy. He wasn't their king, as they've already made very clear. 
And yet Pilate here, what does he do? He seizes this opportunity to really stick it to them, to really rub it in their faces that this is their supposed king. Look at verse 19. So Pilate wrote also an inscription and put it on the cross. And it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And many of the Jews read this inscription. For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. What greater form of mockery could there be other than to see your rumored king, this guy who's claimed to be king and others have made that claim for him, now stripped and beaten and pegged to a Roman cross, a Roman torture device. You see, by crucifying Jesus between these two criminals, Pilate is now sanctioning an act of Roman propaganda as much as anything else. This is what Rome's capable of. So you better stay in line. Behold your king, he says, naked and ashamed like any other common criminal. I think what's interesting is the fact that what Pilate means is a form of mockery, as a, as a form of ridicule to that Jewish mob, was actually a fulfillment of God's word. It's similar to that, that, that phrase that, that the Pharisees scoffed at Jesus. If you remember from Luke chapter 7, that Jesus is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. When that was exactly the point. That was Jesus' point, right? Similarly, I would say that Pilate's mockery of hanging Jesus between these other two enemies of the state fulfills a prophecy about this Lord and Savior. If you remember, you don't have to go there, but Isaiah 53, in that wonderful passage, in that prophecy of our suffering Savior, it says in Isaiah 53, 12, Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. He was numbered, accounted along with any other sinner, along with any other criminal. And thereby makes intercession. He makes restitution for those same sinners. This of course is... Jesus' mission from the very beginning, from his first sort of breath in this world, what has been his mission? Matthew 9, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Luke 19, I have come to seek and save the lost. And there's no better display, no better depiction of Jesus doing just that, uh, doing just that, taking the lost's place and dying the sinner's death. Once again, this form of ridicule, this form of thumbing the nose at all the Jews in that crowd was really just a fulfillment of God's word. As we've already read in in chapter 18, verse number 9 and verse number 32. Notice chapter 19, though, verse 24, that same phrase, this was to fulfill the scriptures. Look at verse number 28 once again. After this, Jesus, knowing all that was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture. 
Notice verse number 36. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Again, nothing was out of place. Nothing was out of order. Yes, it might have been chaotic and full of commotion. As Jesus is is traded hands multiple times in the same evening, people beating the snot out of him, people saying all kinds of mean remarks and our Lord and Savior, and yet even while all that was going on, nothing was out of order. It was all transpiring to fulfill the words of God himself. Sinful man, seditious man, might have been trying to do his very best To defeat heaven's best. But even so, something deeper was at work that same day. Because what looked on the face of it to be the ruin of everyone's hopes and everyone's dreams. Imagine, I always think about this. Imagine Jesus' followers as they see their teacher pegged to that tree. And with him dying, with him breathing out his last, what is also dying? Everything that they had come to expect that Jesus was. When they see him breathing his last, their hopes and dreams died too. Everyone in that moment, it was not a very good Friday at all. It was a black Friday. It was a a Friday of defeat. Because in it, they see nothing but a, but a teacher who lost. And yet, what do, we, what do we know? What do we read? That all of this was fulfilling the words of the Lord. Something deeper, something truer was being affected in those very hours. Not defeat, but deliverance for every single sinner. For every single rebel, for every single malefactor, is their deliverance found in that face of the crucified. And that's what makes the Christian faith so beautifully strange. Is that its very invitation is what? For you to find as the foundation of your faith, the very ground of your hope, the brutal execution. Of the very Lord of that faith. Strange, isn't it? That's our message. It's our creed. Christ and Him crucified, Paul later says, which, from a certain point of view, is actually a very ghastly, pretty awful notion. There's nothing pretty about the cross, there's nothing clean about it. It's a place of violence and viscera. You know, the cross was not high and lifted up as we might suppose. If you read a lot of historical accounts, the Romans who perfected the art of crucifixion, so to speak, they would put those who were crucified low to the ground so that everyone could see their shame. And that shame and that horror would be up close. You couldn't miss Jesus as you were walking into Jerusalem in those days. Those couple days where he's hanging, those hours when he's hanging on the cross, if you were venturing into the city that day, you couldn't miss him because he'd be right there. And in fact, about it makes about, if you think about it, it makes about as much sense to celebrate the cross as to celebrate the electric chair on a necklace. And that's essentially what we've done it's a torture device, a violent piece 
of Roman torture. And we need not, I think, avoid that. Because all that shame and all of that horror, all of that embarrassment is exactly how God has chosen to show us who he most truly is. He's our savior. The savior who goes to that extent to ensure our salvation. Nailed to that Roman tree by a reluctant Roman governor. A spiteful Roman governor at the behest of a very rowdy Jewish mob. What is happening? Jesus is finishing the world's salvation by he himself becoming sin. Taking it all on his shoulders. Which again, this has been his mission from the very beginning. As John the Baptist testifies about him, he is the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. Hebrews 9.26, he has appeared for what reason? To put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. 1 John 3, he appeared, that is, he came down and took on flesh in order To take away sins and to destroy the works of the devil. See what looks like defeat to all the onlookers on that afternoon was actually victory. It was triumph over death and sin in the disguise of defeat. Jesus accomplished all of this for you and for me. Willingly offering his body, his very life on that wretched tree. And just like the father of the prodigal son who runs out to his wayward boy and embraces the shame of that boy and welcomes him home, so too does Christ embrace the embarrassment and the shame of our sin and rebellion and becomes sin for you and I. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God. Again, you see what Pilate might have meant As the ultimate humiliation. The last cruel joke that he could get in to all of the Jews in that crowd. That in fact is our only hope. That Jesus went to the cross and didn't stay dead. See the cross is that place. That place is a place of conundrums. It's a place of paradoxes. Because it's a place of death yes. But it's also a place of life. Is a place of wrath, but is also a place of love. The old 18th century Scottish preacher named Horatius Bonner, he says this. The cross is a place of honor, yet it is shame. It is wisdom, but it is also foolishness. It is both gain and loss, both pardon and condemnation. Both strength and weakness. Both joy and sorrow. It is grace, yet it is righteousness. It is law, yet it is deliverance from the law. It is Christ's humiliation, yet it is Christ's exaltation. That's what we see when Jesus is nailed to that tree. What makes Good Friday so good is because we know what it accomplished. As Jesus cries out, it is finished. On the face of it, nothing about it was good. It was all deplorable, all horrific. And yet at the same time, we know that it was. And we can say, yes, good Friday. Because Christ has entered into that conundrum of sin and death. 
And he has set it all right by taking on sin and death himself. And leaving it behind in the grave that he walks out of. And yet a few short hours from that moment of death. Pilate meant it as a joke. And Jesus embraced it all. And he says, it is finished. Let us pray.